Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. In this episode, we're talking about when UFOs attack. That's correct. When UFOs attack. Now, this first article comes to us from KARE11.com, written by Chris Harapsky, uh, dated August 4th, 2021. Title says Minnesota's most notorious UFO sighting remains a mystery four decades later. Goes on and says a sheriff's deputy encounters a hovering light still unexplained. This is from Warren, Minnesota. Now, this is up clear up in the northwest uh, part of Minnesota, even north of Fargo, clover on the western edge of the state, near, near North Dakota. That's relevant because that's where our next case comes from. Now, it says UFOs are getting a ton of attention lately after a recent Pentagon report admits to unexplained aerial phenomena the government can't explain. It turns out what's widely believed to be among the most significant UFO sightings ever happened right here in Minnesota, August 27, 1979, in Warren, Minnesota, about 20 miles from the North Dakota border. border Marshall County Sheriff's Deputy Val Johnson was on patrol early in the morning on Highway 5 when he saw a bright light to the south on Highway 220. Johnson thought maybe a crashed semi or a downed plane, but as he approached it, he said the light instantly jumped through the windshield, hitting him like a 200-pound pillow, knocking him out. Now, that had to be a frightening experience because, like a lot of us, if you've seen a UFO like near a highway, the first thing your brain does is start to try to reason things out. What's that light? I mean, could it be uh, an ambulance? Could it be a uh, evacuation helicopter of some sort, a, a, a police car, a wreck? And I'm sure those were things that were going through his mind. It says his reaction was preserved in the actual radio call to dispatch when he awoke. And it goes as follows. It says, the dispatch operator, 407, what is your condition? Deputy Johnson, I don't know. Something just hit my car. Dispatch, what's your condition? Are you okay? Johnson, something attacked my car. I heard the glass breaking and the locks. The brakes locked up. I don't know what's going on. According to the Sheriff's Office investigative reports, Johnson's wristwatch and the clock on the 1977 Ford LTD Cruiser stopped working for 14 minutes. Johnson said his teeth were fractured at the gum line and his eyes burned. My eyes were extremely painful, as if I'd been subject to something like an arc welder burn or something, said Johnson during an interview on the 1980 TV show. That's incredible. His story and injuries mystify the nation, but there's another piece of evidence that still brings the curious to the Marshall County Historical Society Museum, the squad car, damage and all. This is the big thing they come to see, said Cheryl Meyer. Sherilyn Meyer, director of the Marshall County Historical Society, while showing us the actual damage to the squad car. Now, if you look at the pictures of this online, or they've got a short video on the site, you see the car, the headlight smashed out, uh, a dent on the roof, and what really gets my attention is the antennas 
that are bent over. It's like somebody just took a pair of vice grips and bent these uh, steel antennas over. Of course, you know, back in 77, they had this big, long, like, whiplashed antenna on top and then one in the back. Both these hard steel antennas just bent over. Whatever it hit him started with a broken headlight, and up here there is a weird dent on top of the hood, broke the windshield, hit the reflector, and bent both of the antenna. The sheriff's office back in 1979 brought out experts from Honeywell and Ford Motor Company to examine the damage. Quote, I have not seen anything like this before, said Ford crash investigator Meredith French in the That's Incredible show. They are extremely unusual. Now, this is a professional crash investigator. I can imagine this guy's pretty much seen it all. And he says he hadn't seen anything like it before. Dennis Brecht, the Marshall County Sheriff at the time, said he took Johnson at his word. I feel that whatever Val told me about the light and the strange incident was true. I don't doubt Val in any way, said Breck in the video. The sheriff tried other means to get an answer as to what happened to Johnson. Investigative documents show he reached out to Alan Hendry, chief investigator with the Center for UFO Studies. The biggest mystery about the Val Johnson case is trying to find out one neat ex explanation for something that could behave the way he described, yet create the kinds of damage that we discovered, said Hendry. In the Dats Incredible Report, no one in 42 years has been able to explain what happened, including Johnson. Upon reflection, we've come to the conclusion that perhaps the Creator has made other things we can't readily see or readily identify. Perhaps this is one of the things we encountered on the road, said Johnson to a studio audience during the That's Incredible. He goes on and says, uh, where is Deputy Johnson today? People in Warren said he'd moved away and stopped doing interviews on this a while ago. We searched online and found an address for Val Johnson in Wisconsin, so we drove there. And it turns out he was the right man. Of course, I think he's in his late 70s now. We spoke with him for 20 minutes, but he did not want to go on record because of the stress and attention. This has caused his family for a long time. So he came out, he talked about it publicly, and what happens? There's this depersoning campaign that sets in. We did. He did, however, permit us, permit us to pass on the notion that he hopes the new UFO sightings and government reports might give people new perspective on this story. Yeah, it, those pictures are just, I mean, riveting, actually. Um, there's another article here that I think is pretty good. I want to go ahead and read this one here. This is the same case. Now, this is from a little bit a little bit older article. This is August 27, 2015. It's from mprnews.org, written by John Inger. It says, whatever happened to the Marshall County cop who hit a UFO? And then it's got this old picture from the time of him standing out there on the road. It says, on September 11, 1979, Val Johnson stood where he says he had been engulfed by a flash of light two weeks earlier. It indicated how big the beam was, at, beam was as it approached. And he has his hands out here, oh, maybe twice the size of a basketball. So it's almost like ball lightning that size, but I don't think it was that, just by the way it acted. At 1.40 a.m. 36 years ago, Marshall County Sheriff's Deputy Val Johnson, of course this is 2015, so you can do the math, be what, 42, 43 years ago, whatever, says Marshall County Sheriff's Deputy Val Johnson was on night patrol along a rural section of State Highway 220 near Warren, Minnesota, when he drove into a ball of white light. Quote, I noticed a very bright, brilliant light, 8 to 12 inches in diameter, 
three, excuse me, three to four feet off the ground, Johnson said in a taped police interview. The edges were very defined. Johnson drove toward the light and woke up in the ditch a half hour later with burns around his eyes. It almost seems like maybe he had lost time here, you know. The windshield and one headlight of his 1977 Ford LTD were smashed. Both radio antenna were bent sharply back. The watch on his wrist and the clock on the dash both ticked 14 minutes slow. Now that's strange because it says the clock in the car and the watch are 14 minutes behind. But he was in the ditch about a half hour. You know, I would really love to see this guy do some regression hypnotherapy to see if there was some sort of an abduction that actually happened that maybe he's not remembering or not talking about, I suppose. The incident turned Johnson into a local legend and national media sensation, and years later people are still talking about it. Johnson's squad car is preserved in the Marshall County Museum with a plaque that says UFO car. Of course, there's a lot of stuff online. You can see pictures of this little museum they have there. Really kind of a neat thing, I think. And people still come from miles around to see it. It's an annual display at the Marshall County Fair. Sometimes former Marshall County Sheriff Dennis... Sometimes, former Marshall County Sheriff Dennis Brake gives a talk at the museum about the car, and the night his deputy drove it into a ball of light. People investigated and never drew, police investigated and never drew any conclusions. And has another picture here of that windshield, which, and I mean, it was smashed pretty good. The impact seems to have taken place at the bottom of the windshield, driver's side. I mean, you got a major impact, and then a small one above it, and it's really something. He goes on and says, but the incidents. Enduring fame has lingered far beyond Marshall County. What's known as the Val Johnson, what's known as the Val Johnson incident, remains one of the top ten most influential UFO encounters in history, according to Jerome Clark, who wrote about it in his 1998 book, The UFO Encyclopedia. Paranormal TV shows like UFO Files and Mysteries at the Museum filmed reenactments. Even now, people debate the legitimacy of the encounter. An online forums. Well, they can debate all they want. We have the evidence. It was an extraordinarily important case, Clark said. Plenty of people have strange experiences on back roads at night, Clark explained, but very few of them yield any tangible evidence. Fewer still are ever investigated. But one thing is strikingly absent from the small town museum, the TV shows and online discussions, Val Johnson. When you try to track Val Johnson, people you try to track down Val Johnson, people tend to say that he's hard to find, that he's still haunted by what happened to him 36 years ago. A 2013 Pioneer Press article said Johnson quickly grew tired of interviews after the incident and is believed to now live somewhere in Wisconsin. Sheriff Sprecht's wife, Louise, said Johnson hasn't kept in touch with his old colleagues in Marshall County for 30 years, aside from a letter he sent a few years back with no return address. As it turns out, Johnson isn't that hard to find. He lives in Euclid, Wisconsin, and he answers his phone. At the first mention of UFOs, he laughed out loud. Quote, it's unexplainable and will remain so. I'm happy with my mental stability, Johnson said. <laughs> People can don't call about that anymore. It becomes... And then it goes on and says it becomes readily apparent that the details of the Val Johnson incident, still enthralling UFO enthusiasts, just don't fascinate Johnson. Well, I think he's just had to move on with his life. Quote, I looked up at the sky and said, well, shucks, what happened? Johnson recalled, and then I shuffled on with my life. He had small kids to race back then. Hitting a ball of light and ending up in a ditch wasn't close to the most important thing going on in his life. For almost a year after the incident, his phone hardly stopped ringing. 
He was quoted at the time by Associated Press writer Barbara Dewey saying his wife was run ragged by the constant calls. He appeared on Good Morning America and in dozens of newspapers across the country. For a while, he was a very big deal. It says, and then other stories came along and pushed me off the front page, he said. Thank goodness. Johnson stayed on as deputy for a while after the incident. Then he took a job as chief of police in the nearby town of Oslo, Minnesota. Locals, he said, never questioned his ability to enforce the law. In 1982, he was hired to set up the Rosu, Minnesota Police Department, but lost his job less than a year later over a funding dispute. Once you're a chief of police and then you get fired, he said, you're unhirable. He was working as a security guard in a Twin Cities small when a friend got him a job answering the customer service line at 3 a.m. He asked me how I'd like to take 60 angry phone calls a day, he recalled, and I said, dang, I can do that. For many year, for years, people sometimes showed up on his front porch with theories about his experience in Marshall, in Marshall County. He says, we'd sit in the backyard with lemonade and talk. They'd tell me what they thought happened to me, and I'd nod at the appropriate times. Eventually, they'd go away. <laughs> Johnson is now 71. Of course, this was, what, uh, seven years ago, so I'm assuming he's still alive. He'd be 78. He has a short white beard and thinning white hair. He's retired, still living in Euclid with his wife, Roseanne. No one has stopped by in years. No one calls about the UFOs, even when his name airs on television. He has great-grandchildren. To this day, Johnson won't speculate on what happened to him in 1979. He doesn't think the light he saw was an extraterrestrial, but also won't rule that out as a possibility. For years, he said, it just hasn't crossed his mind. He says, I saw a ball of light, I drove toward it, and suddenly it was in the car with me. It's unexplainable and will remain so. I'm happy with my mental stability. If it seems Johnson's ambivalence could cast some doubt on the famous incident, those passionate about UFOs run unfazed. Clark said it's a textbook UFO encounter coping mechanism. Well, I'm not sure what else you're supposed to do when you see one of these silly things. I mean, uh, there's no point in driving yourself crazy over uh, denying the reality of it. And I think that the way he did it is the way that most people that are... You know, mentally in good health and have the good mental skills to do it would react to it. You simply recognize what you saw, don't drive yourself uh, mad trying to explain it, and go on with your life. It's all you can do. Clark talked to scores of people involved in UFO encounters for his books. Some became obsessed with what happened to them. Some plunged into denial. Others, he said, found peace, refusing to allow an encounter to change their lives. If anything, Clark said, it's a story to tell at the bar. And that's it. Well, I think it's a little bit more than that. I think it's a story just to share to our body of knowledge about these things because this is our own form of grassroots disclosure. Uh, we know what happened based on this eyewitness account. We don't have uh, several pages of uh, blacked out material. It hasn't been classified by the deep state and tossed into a file somewhere, kept at the you know, at the document dump of a private company. It's on the internet. It's becomes a, it becomes a shared experience. And I think it's helpful just to have it there. And together these all add up. And at some point we begin to get a clearer picture of what this whole UFO phenomenon is. Now there's one other uh, account here I think is important to look at as far as these UFO attacks, and I think that's a fair assessment to call these things. Both, both these cases, these UFOs have acted in very aggressive manners. 
And this is the Fargo's most famous UFO sighting happened in the skies above Bison football, it says. This is from Inform.com. Let me see if I can find the author here real quick. By Tracy Briggs. This is December 15th, 2020. And then it's got a nice picture here of this old 1940s type football contest. Very nostalgic. This is Fargo, uh, North Dakota, which is actually kind of on the border there with Minnesota. It would be just a little way south of Warren, Minnesota, we just talked about. So in the same general vicinity, far western Minnesota, far eastern North Dakota. It says Fargo. It's almost as though Fargo Forum's sports editor, Eugene Fitzgerald, had a tiny crystal ball sitting beside his typewriter in some smoke-filled newsroom that day in the fall of 1948 when he wrote his headline for October 1st. Aerial display likely in Bison Augustine game tonight. Of course, in this case, aerial display referred to Fitzgerald's prediction that the game would feature more passing than rushing. It says NDSU won the night, 14-6, hardly a show of aerial dominance. Nonetheless, Fitzgerald's headline turned out to be a strangely turned out to be strangely strangely prophetic, as there was a pretty spectacular aerial aerial display in the sky that night. It became the subject of a U.S. government investigation, the files of which have only recently been declassified and opened for the public to see. So you see the difference in what happens with these UFO encounters. We had the law enforcement officer who immediately reports it, and it's released to the public, just disseminated out there for everyone to see. This case in 1948 involved a former World War II fighter pilot, so the, the military immediately uh, jumps on the case and classifies everything. So they keep that information out of the public domain for decades, and, which really hinders um, the whole process of crowdsourcing these encounters and making them available to the public. Now, if we go on here, we can see it says, it's come to be known as the Gorman dogfight and is one of the most well-known 20th century UFO stories. It's also one of the most credible, considering the man who claimed to see the flying saucer was an accomplished World War II pilot, and at least three other witnesses were experienced aviators. So what we have here is the classic mass UFO sighting. For witness, for years, reports of what happened that night came from I, the eyewitnesses and Gorman himself, but now that the files have been declassified, more details have emerged. The incident was featured on the History Channel show called Project Blue Book in 2019. Then it says, according to columnist Kurt Erickson, who wrote about Gorman in the forum in 2011, Gorman was born July 7, 1923, to Norbert and Roberta Gorman. He grew up in Fargo, where his father was a Cass County agent. During World War II, Gorman became a B-25 instructor for French aviation students. When the war was over, he returned to Fargo and was employed as the manager of a construction company. When the North Dakota Air National Guard formed at Fargo's Hector Airport, January 16, 1947, Gorman joined the squadron as a second lieutenant. Gorman was flying his P-51 Mustang with other guard pilots in the early evening hours of October 1st, 1948. Part of their flight path was over the old 
Dakota Field, where the North Dakota Agricultural College Bison football team played. Its games, according to North Dakota State University Assistant Athletic Director Ryan Perrault, the field was slightly south of the current Dakota Field at 1310 17th Avenue North. Goes on, it says, Dakota Field at the time was, loco- was located adjacent to Churchill Hall in the center of campus where the Memorial Union and A. Glenn Hill Center now sit, Peril said. He said kickoff was at 8 p.m. that Friday night. About a half hour later, most of the pilots flying decided to call it a night, but Gorman wanted to get in more flying time. According to a story in the Fargo Forum dated October 3, 1948, Gorman was flying near Hector Field, about two and a half miles from the football field, when an air traffic controller told him about a small Piper Cub in the area. He acknowledged a smaller plane about 500 feet below, but a few minutes later, he spotted something else. He said it was a flying disc, was round with well-defined edges, brilliantly lit, and circling slowly over the city. He asked the tower about the object, and they said, they only saw Gorman's plane in the Piper Cub. This object was not showing up on radar. Gorman decided to investigate, but as he got closer to the object, it suddenly got brighter and shot away from him. He estimated it was flying around 250 miles per hour, but accelerated to 600 miles an hour. Gorman's plane could only fly about 400 miles an hour, so he lost the object, but it came back and it flew right at him. When the object was coming head-on, he says, I held my plane pointed right at it, Gorman said. The object came so close that I involuntarily ducked my head because I thought a crash was inevitable, but the object zoomed over my head. So here he is, flying to investigate this flying saucer, which he can't catch. It's kind of playing this cat-mouse game with him, where it flies directly back at him. Okay, now... You can say that that's not an actual attack, but in a way that is an attack because this thing is acting in a super aggressive way. And what if this pilot would have responded uh, in the wrong direction? I mean, it could have been like, it was definitely life threatening. The dogfight lasted 27 minutes, a lifetime for a UFO encounter. That is a long time. The declassified documents include a diagram Gorman drew of what went on in the air that night. It's almost like this thing was just testing him. Now, he has a diagram of his dogfight that happened here. Shows all of his maneuvers, what he did. Pretty detailed. In the History Channel's Project Blue Book, UFO historian Richard Dolan says the detailed drawing tells us a lot. It shows you've got a, it shows you've got an experienced seasoned World War II fighter pilot who is dealing with a light phenomena that is clearly outperforming his aircraft, he said. Gorman was said to be so shaken after the incident that he had trouble landing the plane. He told the Fargo Forum later, it was the weirdest experience I've had in my life. And this guy had had some pretty serious experiences as far as uh, that goes. I mean, it says he was involved in aerial combat. He's a fighter pilot. It says, after Gorman told his commanding officer what happened, the incident was referred to Air Force Intelligence. Investigators arrived in Fargo on October 4th and interviewed the two air traffic controllers in the tower that night, as well as a pilot of the Piper Club, a local physician. All of them corroborated Gorman's account. Gorman wrote in a sworn statement that he was convinced there was a definitive thought behind the object's maneuvers, and that the aircraft could go faster, turn tighter, and climb steeper than his aircraft. 
Despite what seems to be evidence to the contrary, the Air Force concluded the object was a combination of looking at the planet Jupiter and a weather balloon. Now think about how condescending that is. You've got your former fighter pilot who tells you he has this encounter. This guy's been through World War II for crying out loud. He tells you he saw a flying saucer, and you tell him, no, what you actually saw was Jupiter and a weather balloon. I'm going to say it one more time. How many weather balloons do we have floating around up there? And don't we need some sort of a federal mandate to control weather balloons? Because if there's that many of these things running loose in the atmosphere, uh, threatening to have, uh, you know, collisions with the aircraft, and we got to do something about this. According to Erickson, Gorman insisted it wasn't a weather balloon, but the Air Material Command warned him not to divulge any further information or he would be subject to a court-martial. So that's your natural inclination to cover things up. These are the people that so many in the community are looking for disclosure from. That might be one reason why Gorman stayed pretty quiet throughout the rest of his military career. He thinks so, which took him to bases in Italy and throughout the U.S. He retired as lieutenant colonel and died from pancreatic cancer in Texas in the early 1980s at the age of 59. So, wow. It says, and then it goes on, it says, According to reports, most of the dogfight action would have been happening before halftime, just north of the field. The National Centers for Environmental Information says the visibility in Fargo that evening was 13.1 miles, and there was no record of precipitation, so football fans wouldn't have been instructed by clouds, snow, or rain. If what they saw is what is often reported from UFO sightings from the same distance away, the fans might have seen flashes of light, not unlike heat lightning. They also might have heard the sounds of Gorman's plane and the object. We're saying might, because at this point, the forum hasn't been able to track down any fans or players who were there that night. A, a Facebook call-out yielded some reminiscing about the team of the 1940s, the players of which would be at least 90 years old, even if more witnesses from football, the football game or elsewhere, elsewhere come forward from that night, it's not likely any kind of official report would be changed. However, for what it's worth, an astronomer contracted by the Air Force to, say, to study the Gorman incident took Gorman's side that this was no weather balloon, something his son backs up in Project Blue Book. Paul Heineck said, my father loved Air Force pilots because he said, how can the Air Force deny reports by people that they themselves train? Well, of course, we know that it doesn't really matter to them. Once someone speaks the truth about these things, they're, they're absolutely going to um, d deny the truth. That, that's considered the uh, Gorman incident. Both, these, both of these uh, incidents are important. The one from 1979 at Warren and this one from 1948 at Fargo. And like I said, you could just see the difference in uh, how the information is either bottled up or disseminated, depending upon who gets a hold of it first. And in this case, you know, where it involved an Air Force uh, pilot, the uh, deep state was allowed to come in and just completely encircle these reports, uh, tamp down any talk about it, and bury it for 40 or 50 years or longer. In the case of the sheriff's deputy in Minnesota, even though it was still 1979, you can see how when this 
report is released publicly immediately, uh, the facts are there. They can be looked at. Uh, they can be they can be double checked and still disseminated for the public at large to see. So it's it's just the the right way of doing things and the wrong way of doing things. Until next time, this is UFO warning over now. Thank <music> you.